Hello and welcome to the Spread the Word podcast. This time we bring you some of the highlights from the London Short Story Festival 2015. Over the next hour we'll hear stories, words of wisdom and anecdotes from writers including Ben Oakry, John McGregor, Kevin Barry, Nee Parks, Marina Warner and many more. So, switch your phones to silent and let's head into the first session. We've come today to Piccadilly for the London Short Story Festival. Uh, it's the Times um, EFG Short Story Prize. Um, and here specifically to uh, see and listen to Kevin Barry reading. Well, I've come because I'm stalking Kevin Barry. Well, I love Kevin Barry's short stories, so I'm looking forward to hearing something about how he puts them together with his creative process. <laughs> Hello. Hi. Um, when I open my, my laptop at home, I, I, I see two folders, and one says stories, and the other says scripts. And I've got this strange thing lately where whatever I'm working on, I don't know what, which folder to put it in. Um, all the stories have been turning into monologues and dialogues, and all the little dramas and scripts have been turning into stories. So I don't know where I am, and I don't know what I'm doing. Um, but I may be onto something, I think, because I do think Increasingly, we like to hear stories read to us as much as we like to, to read them. Um, so this, this piece is, 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 is written for the ear, really. It's a monologue for a London Irish cab driver as he goes around his business um, one day in London. I want to thank Paul and the organisers for arranging actual traffic noise outside <laughs> today to work as a kind of a soundtrack for the piece. I've just realized actually that it's also set on the longest day of the year, which is today. So I should get a medal for this, I, I, I really should. So this is called Monologue for Cab Man. Avenue to Gillingham Close. I cut my hand by Leightonstone High Road. Come around the Close, Earl's Off Road. I was opening a can of drink. The blood splatters. Blood is all over, a vicious hot summer day coming into evening. The window is rolled and the arm is out and the blood in tiny drips spatters the Jesus out of Matcham Road. Driplets are droplets. To the high road goes Selby Road by the Plough and Harrow to Langthorn Road by the St. Patrick's RC. The cut is after taking a slice from the inside of my thumb. Oh mother. And it sings is the only way to put it, the high-pitched note a sharp-cut pain has the longest evening of the summer and the year. The eyes are watering inside my head. All I can do is carry the tune of the cut under my breath as I go. Hello, frail arm raised for me. This old dear, she waits for me. Hello, veined in the eyes, carrying a bag of bottles. Clinkety-clink, she like her drink. A talker, right off I take her for a talker. She says, this is brutal heat and seven o'clock in the day. No respite, missus, I says. It's worse it's getting, she says. She is Irish from a long time ago, as myself. Beef to the heels off the Ox Mountain County Sligo. Now this is a big bone boy and handsome was how my mother would always say for the fattish child I was. She says, the old dear, she says, there's a show tonight in Hackney I'd pay good money to see. The Empire, I says, no, she says, the dog and feathers. Joe Malone from Kilty Mock. In the county of Mayo, I says, 
Beautiful singer, she says, the tears would stream down your face and the heart would give out in you. And which way are you taking me for Dunedin Road, anyhow, driver? <laughs> By the Leighton Library, I says. That'll do, she says, come up Rockholt Road. Exactly, I says. I was propositioned, she wants, she says, in the Leighton Library. That wasn't today nor yesterday, I says. <laughs> Cheeky, she says, he was an Indian gentleman. He had lovely knees. Knees, I says. It was summer, it was shorts he was in. He had lovely, brown, agreeable knees. Steady, love, I says. Very agreeable, gentleman, she says. Handsome as a dove. Steady, I says. Or shall I open another window, dear, and get some air in? Cheeky, she says. Anyhow, I had Cyril at home and he's wanting his tea. Since the legs went, he's useless for himself. Can't eat a tin of beans. What's happened, Cyril, and his legs, I says. He's fallen out a window, she says. Nasty, I says. Ground floor, she says. It's not like it was sky-breaking news. <laughs> but he's done himself in well enough leg-wise. The hand slips into the bag. The screwing of the cap. The little nip she takes like a bird. So it's not like I can run away to Mumbai, she says. Not with Cyril at home wanting his beans. It wouldn't be just, ma'am, I says. He was trying to adjust the drapes on the runner, she says. He was always a holy fool, was Cyril. Anyway, she says, this was what? She says, 1976, Montreal Olympics, I says. Pig heat that summer and all, she says. I tell you now exactly where I was, I says. I was on a moped. I was learning my roots. I was straight off the Ox Mountains. Plonk me down in Piccadilly Circus. You could have told me it was the face of the yellow moon. I don't sleep so hot if there's a moon, she says. I've come down Adelaide Road, the one way. I know how you feel, love, I says. On the full moon nights, I says. What I haven't seen in the back of this cab. <laughs> Go on, she says. Oh, I have seen the nuttiest things, I says. I have seen a notorious midget from Kentish Town attempt to sell Chinese cultural artifacts to a vicar from the city of Lagos in Nigeria. He's <laughs> Anglican by the collar. Now, she says. And I wouldn't mind, I says, but when the vicar won't buy the midget, he comes over shirty. They can do, she says. <laughs> no call for shirty, she says. But here, she says, are you sure, she says, are you sure it was a midget? How do you mean, I says. Sometimes, she says, sometimes what you take for a midget can be a jockey. Oh, I says, here we go. I says, Dunedin Road, still my blood sings and drips and the air above and the sky thickens the summer even at its height is turning. Orient Way, Temple Mills Depot and the Hackney Marshes. She doesn't want to tell me a midget from a jockey. <laughs> I know a jockey. How many years have I carried the fancy? How many times Charing Cross Station for Kempton Park? My hands could do it, my eyes closed. Nose would bring me there by the feel, even. Midges, about and all, thick in the air. Midges, midgets, the words go skewy and all over at the rough end of a nine-hour shift. I had a jockey try have it off with his missus, our lady friend, in the back of this cab one time. I said, here. I said, give over now. I said, what you do in the sanctity of your own bedroom. That's a private and blessed business, the best of luck to you with it all. But let's not, friend, not here, not in the light of day, not with the traffic heavyish. <laughs> Chatsworth Road is having one of its dreary moments. It can do. 
I wouldn't mind she was a blonde about six foot two. I'll take Clifton Road for Churchill Walk. There's a regular there once taking from Churchill Walk. Poor Sam. Poor Sam is my old Greek lad. He is originally Green Lanes. He's taught me a bit of Greek, has Sam, as it happens. Here he comes now, the long face on. That'll be his tomatoes he's worrying about. He's taught me that hasapis means butcher in the Greek and malaka means wanker in the Greek. Uh, what more would you need, I says, in this line of business? And Sam got a laugh out of that, and it's not often Sam gets a laugh in. Hello, Sam. Well, he says, the latest, he says, these tomatoes, he says, it's a write-off, Tony. He says, it's the disaster season we've always known was coming. Now, this is a man who is quite frankly fucking obsessed with his tomatoes. <laughs> he says, first they've bolted, now they've got the yellow wilt. Nasty, I says, and I wince for him in the rear view, knowing Sam and his toms this past 20 years, the last words you want to hear from the poor man's mouth is yellow and wilt. They have a thirst on now, he says, there's not a sea that would quench it. A trail of blood is microscopic, or so I imagine, and you could not see it with the naked eye but maybe you could sense it from high up if there was a sensor above the sky that mapped by the heat of our blood these trails we take all over the town. Say that there are tiny red dots to mark on the map the heat of our blood as we move all over the town. Pedro Street, the Redwall Road, and the river, the Lee. For the air of a river, the word is riverine. Its atmosphere, our trapped feeling. Sam, the Greek, he says, the worst thing that can happen in the line of tomatoes is if they've come in too soon. Like very much in life, Sam, I says. Patience, I says, is the virtue required. But Sam is not for talking, not tonight. The year is screwed on Sam if his toms have come in early and watery. This summer there will be no alignment of the stars for Sam. I am thinking of love by St. John at Hackney Gardens. In fact, I am no longer married to Doreen. Good luck, Sam, I says, but he hardly has his eyes up from his trainers tonight. Poor Sam and his tomatoes, though he adds the usual tip, his 20%. Never let it be said for the old boy from Green Lanes. A gentleman, one of the sad. I believe he tried to do away with himself one time, but did not follow through. Sam wouldn't have that kind of show in himself. Hot. As it is, the year is turning, the grass is yellowing, it comes around us quick, the turn of year, and a quiet and eerie hour can creep down on you out of nowhere and the sky and nothing, and the road just slides up of its own volition and eats away the last of the daylight for its darkness. The exasperating fact is that despite all my best efforts, the gymnasium, the 20-mile Sunday hikes, the bloody Pilates. I aged quicker than Doreen. Dalston Lane by the three compasses. And for all those years and Monday nights, our nights out, I'm sat with her in bistro or in bloody wine bar, and I'm thinking, I could do better, you know. They'll take her for my mother or for an auntly type. But then, one dark, sudden morning, I wake up, I look across the pillows, and Doreen, at 53 years of age, an April morning, is fresh as a watered plant. And me, I've turned into the most horrendous old bum face. <laughs> into my father, essentially. Face like the sole of a farmer's boot. The back of my head so wide you'd play handball off it. Sat in my cab with a breeze block for a noggin. 
I'll keep going tonight, Sandringham Road by the Argos. And Argos always reminds me of Doreen. It is as well that I let the streets eat me up tonight. My mother would always say, if you have morbid thoughts, the thing to do is stay busy. And this was a woman who never stopped going. <laughs> this was a woman who'd be ironing sheets at five in the morning. Tonight I will let the streets eat me up and shoo me down and spit me out again. The town is filling up with its people and lights. And I have a bad five minutes read the Doreen situation. It is when you see people who are young and alive. I get an unpleasantness rise up in me sometimes in the vicinity of Balls Pond Road. Balls Pond Road to Essex Road by the Hope and Glory. I, I, I haven't taken a drink in 14 years. I'd have been on the soda water in the wine bars with Doreen, Doreen acting glamorous on White Rioja. And I do not wish to sound odd, nor superstitious, nor sectionable, nor in any way batty, but there are secret forces beneath these fucking streets, and they send up their airs and dark energies. We might as well be out in the open about this. Beneath the streets and tar, Upper Street, the stations of the cross, the stations of my life, and these airs, our feelings, might be made of a sorrow, our sadness that has lingered for years in a place, or has been trapped there. I pick it up clearly sometimes as I drift past, and I can smell from a great distance off danger in the night. The word for the atmosphere of wolves on the air should be Wolverine. A blessed arm rises for me and thanks be to fuck that it does before I go off again down that dark tunnel and into my black thoughts. Wolves. Hello, she says. I'm for the Bohan Gardens. But take it easy, driver, and take it nice and slow, because I've had a bit of a feed tonight. Mr. Ottolinghi has done very well for himself, I says. <laughs> What that man can't do with a chickpea, she says. <laughs> Immense, I says, and he's a perfect gent and all. And we drift together and banter and we move. And the air of the city moves through its night graces, its warm embraces, its secret traces, its melancholy faces, its dank, its dark and hidden places, all of its motley races, all of its nut jobs and all of its hard cases. By Clonsley Place, I am almost lighthearted. Her words, she tells me of her life and loves. Her words and scent fills up the cab, her dramas. And how it's the secret in life, she says, to remain at all times cheerful. I couldn't agree more, Mrs. I says. Miss, she says. <laughs> Our eyebrows rise together to meet in the rear view. Hello. I give her my card and her, my heart is going like the 2.30 at Kempton Park over hard ground. Often it's around here I'd be, I says. Often it's around this patch of the woods for me, I says. Should you find some night that a car, cab is hard to find. Thank you, she says. She taps the number into her phone under cabby brackets Irish with an X alongside. <laughs> Cheeky. And she gives the card back to me. Copenhagen Street. Cartwright Gardens. I was young around here one time. Friday nights I'd meet Doreen by Gooch Street Station. Tottenham Street, again, second time today. Ghost of Fitzrovia. The cut sings and I bite through the new scab and there is blood, again. Riding House Street, for Charlotte Street, for... Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs>
Okay, coming up next is the Kane Prize for African Writing. Reading next, Ni Ai Kwai Parks. He's an author, a very, very good author. And I know him as a poet, but I think he's, he might be here for fiction. So, yes, it's a collection of stories called The City Will Love You, and all the stories are set in cities and um, interesting things that happen in them. So I've chosen a story that's set in London. And to give you some context, this is a house full of refugees of sorts. Um, these are not your refugees that you see crossing the water and, and, and not surviving. Um, these are, they consider themselves highly intellectual refugees. The price they've had to pay to, to, to make it to London is they've had to change their names. And most of, it, most of them have done it uneventfully. I mean, the reason why they change their names is if you, you go to the British High Commission and you get refused a visa, it's marked in your passport. So the only way to start again is to start again. So you need a new birth certificate. So they've all done it fairly uneventfully, apart from one Nigerian living in the house who's a Yoruba who's ended up with a, an Igbo name and is not very happy with it, especially because, because he thinks it's a girl's name. Um, and so most of them seem to be unscathed. Um, two of the primary characters um, were, were childhood friends from Ghana, and they've also changed their names, and everything's been fine until now. So I'm reading at a point where one of the characters, the one who seems the most settled, and most uninclined to go back home suddenly doesn't seem okay. Um, the story is called When We Were We. Then I come home one evening to find Kwame sitting in my room, head bowed, listening to Joel Aka. Behind him on my bed is one of his old notebooks from university, Psych 305, Psychology of Personality. It is not open. On the cover where his full name sits, among doodles of rule body parts and Venn diagrams, he has underlined the Kwame so heavily that the cardboard backing is dented. I have known Kwame almost since birth. When he's ready to speak, he's unstoppable. I lie on the bed next to the embattled notebook and close my eyes. I remember the last time we lay, I lay back this way, without the practical thought of rest. It was in the village, our village, a few weeks after I'd finished my exams, before national service. I took my raffia mat down to a clearing in my mother's farm to contemplate the magnitude of my journey. The sky, filtering through the cocodua leaves, formed, formed dapple patterns on me, making a river of my skin. Son of a mine worker and a farmer, I had left home at 12 and barely been back. Fueled by a scholarship from my father's employers, I had studied with kids who no longer knew where their grandparents came from, reached the heights of education, reached heights of education that few people dreamed of in our village. Kwame and I were unique in our generation. Remember when we were we? I have clearly missed a volley from his outburst when I realized that he's finally talking, but I nod and he carries on. When we played alukoto, when we played football, it was you and me. When we got chased by that baboon on heat, it was you and me that climbed a tree before we realized how foolish it was to try to escape a baboon by climbing a tree. <laughs> Secondary in Kumasi, it was you and me. University. Even our mothers treated us as one, always Kwesi and Kwame. When he pauses, he's shaking. Julaka's Bonambo has reached the syncopated instrumental section that highlights songs of its time have as a signature. The trumpet punctuates the melody that accompanies the lyric, Asempa Peni. In my mind's eye, I can see the trumpeter step forward and lift his horn to the sky. Kwame smiles. You remember? I nod. That gentle voice coming out of a misshapen man like him it's a wonder. He stretches his arm towards me and holds out his hand. I place his Psych 305 notebook in his palm. Kwame opens the book, then shuts it. 
He runs a finger over the mess he has made of his name and shakes his head. Love is strange, brother, he says, handing the notebook back to me. Oh, so the other thing you need to know is Kwame, who we're talking about, um, was dating a, a girl from Essex um, who leaves him for a guy from Thailand. And then he meets um, a WPC on the bus, and he's dating a WPC. So he brings this policewoman to the house regularly, um, which is kind of weird for the other housemates. Um, there we go. <clears throat> He's, he chants a, common, a commentary rhyme. Odoyehun odoyewu. Love is wonder, love is death. Instinctively, I respond. Love is wonder indeed. Sophia asked me for my African name, he says. I feel as though something important has just slipped from my grasp and shattered. I think of Nigel's simple exit strategy. So simple it never crossed our minds. He was standing in the middle of our sitting room he was standing in the middle of, of our sitting room. So you want to fix your names, eh? You want them back. Lagos slapped the arm of the sofa. Uh-uh, you are selling names now. We'll have them back when we go home, I replied. Nigel, beer in hand, was undeterred. But what if you can't go home? Kwame nodded. Who wants to die with a false name? There was a cheer from the TV after Wicked fell in a cricket match on Sky Sport. Lagos changed the channel. Nigel lifted his beer to chest height. So Nigel is... Um, is also in the house, but he's not quite the same kind of migrant because he's white Zimbabwean, so his grandfather was from England, so he was fine. But he's very street smart, so he's helping them out. It's really simple. You apply for one of these deed poll change, name change things, buy a few, pay a few bucks, and in a couple of weeks, you have the name you want. You've got your name back. Kwame let his, his body sink into the sofa. Actually, I don't mind Silas. What's the difference in one called Adolf or Silas? I frowned. You just said you didn't want to die with a false name. Kwame shrugged. Now I'm tempted to remind him, but I, I can tell he's troubled. Remember Eno, he asks. Of course, I say, wondering why he's asking about my ex-girlfriend. When she asked me, knowing she's a copper, I told her I had the name in my passport, Kofi. How was I to know? How was I to know she would start calling me Kofi all the time? He sighs and stands, suddenly animated. I can handle being called Kofi. You get me? It's strange, it's bloody weird, but I can handle it. The problem is, remember when you were with Eno? He performs a strange movement that is neither dance hall move nor sex simulation. He looks like one of the dogs I see peeing at lampposts <laughs> during my street sweeping shift. I laugh so hard that I fall off the bed. Kwame tries to suppress his laughter, but his eyes fill with water. You know what I mean. I don't answer, but it hasn't escaped me that in the throes of ecstasy, Sophia, like Eno, is a screamer. Don't get me wrong. I like it when a, woman, when a woman screams when we're fucking, but if she's going to call out a name, I want it to be my name, <laughs> my real name. The name making her feel so good, not some unknown Friday born. <laughs> he sits again. I love her. My stomach does a slow turn. He may speak like some strange hybrid, but I know Kwame. He has been holding this in for a while. When we changed our names, I was lucky. My day name, the name everyone at home calls me, my name when we were we, remained the same, Kwesi. Kwame's name changed to Kofi. It's never been an issue because in England we use Christian names that mean little to us. But Sophie's request has ruptured Kwame's hidden wound, a wound that deepens each time they make love, with every orgasm. He is ready to tell her the truth. I read Kwame's profile. It is the face of my oldest friend. It's the face of his alien mother tucked into his father's stubborn chin. 
he has never looked more at ease. Well, I'm very excited to see Adam Marek because I heard, I heard him read last year and I just thought he was superb. Many of his stories are actually on BBC podcast. Well, I don't know if it's podcast, but it's that sort of BBC iPlayer thing. And I listen to those when I'm doing ad- admin work. I'm just really looking forward to the, the Finding Your Voice section um, and um, hearing Adam Marek and Naveen Godvidin and Ethel Rohan speak. I'm here very much wearing my brevity hat this weekend, so I thought I would stick with one, a very short story Um, flash fiction if you like and uh, all you really need to know is it's set in Mississippi it's an American couple bee killer the MRI revealed the source of the pain and limp in my left foot a hair caught deep in the tissue around my ankle bone likely a dog's hair the doctor said one in a million chances a tiny hair could cause such trouble he added the cords in his neck made me think of blue black licorice vines After the surgery, the doctor confirmed what I'd suspected all along. The supposed hair was in fact the leg of an insect, a bee. My husband kept a hive of bees in a tower of white boxes on top of our garage. For decades before getting the bees, he'd suffered terrible sinus allergies, and the local honey proved to be the perfect cure. However, his first sting made his face swell like a bad moon. He refused to part with the bees, though, said he would have to learn to be more careful. You couldn't be any more careful, I said, but he was already outside in the back garden, zipping up his veil. I constantly heard the hum of the bees, nights especially. My husband said I was exaggerating. He didn't like it either when I told him I felt like a bird inside an eggshell, tapping to get out. Once, I climbed on top of the roof of the garage and placed my hand inside the hive. The bees covered me like a fat glove, alive and moving. It disappointed me, no end that they didn't attack. My husband would have gotten rid of the hive then, surely. But I found I couldn't bat my hand and disturb the colony. Out of fear, yes, but also out of wonder at how the bees were all just going about their business. Go, go, go. Innocent of danger, in each doing what they did best for the good of the whole, a family. Several times I stopped neighbors on our street and mentioned insect viruses and killer bees, trying to get them riled. Instead, they visited with my husband and sweet-talked him for free honey. Our youngest son, a sophomore in high school, filmed the bees, a documentary for one of his science classes. Not you too, I said. Not me too what, he asked. My husband grinned as he watched our son's video, showing all of his teeth and his eyes narrowed to two happy slits. That night in bed, still airing his teeth, he said, great that the boy and I have something we can enjoy together again. I didn't say, we all want something we can enjoy together again. No, I said, never heard you go on so much about anything, ever, like you do about those bees. Our son's documentary earned him an A+. All that's going on in the world, I said, wars and inventions and research breakthroughs, and they're handing out top marks for a video about bees. Is that a veiled congratulations way to go, couldn't be prouder, son, he asked. I wonder what things were going to be like when he went off to college and it was just his father and me and the bees. My husband joined the Boonville Bee Club and rented a fancy stainless steel extractor to harvest the honey. 
I watch the extractor spin the honey from the combs like nectared whiskey flying. My husband, suited in white like a spaceman, called the bees an architectural marvel and premier pollinators. He said the bees work themselves to death, poor things. We wouldn't have fruits or vegetables or nuts without the bees, he claimed. What about the queen, I said. The colony would be nothing without the queen. She's as much a slave to duty as the rest, he said. Average queen lays two million eggs in her lifetime. He went on to tell me how a sick bee leaves the colony to die alone so as not to infect the others. Sacrifices himself, he said. Plenty of us do that, I said. He didn't look up from the honey, dripping now out of a nozzle at the bottom of the extractor like infected rain. Over the telephone, my husband took an hour to tell a young man how to catch a swarm of bees off the branch of a tree. In our 25 years together, we had never spoken to each other for an hour straight, sounding so pleasant, so jovial, so damn tender. Behind the cover of a cookbook, I was reading about bees. Damned if we didn't need the bees after all. Damned if whenever the worker bees found a rich source of pollen, they didn't return to the colony and perform a dance, talking with their bodies and giving the other bees directions. Go 90 degrees to the left of the sun here, go 60 degrees to the right of the sun there. My husband's new cronies at Bee Club got him paranoid about colony thefts, so he bought a shotgun. Price of honey is getting right up there with gold, he said. People would steal a colony as quick as an inch of water boils. Who in hell talks about an inch of water boiling, I said. He laughed, said, at least bees have the grace to die after they sting a person. He looked at me then, really looked at me, as if he might kiss me. My face and mouth softened, waiting. He walked out of the kitchen and straight to the hive. He kept the shotgun at our bedside, its mouth leaning against the wall. Once, he charged into the Mississippi night with a gun, only to find raccoons. Sometimes, alone in the bedroom, I positioned myself at the window and aimed the shotgun at the hive. I imagined the blast and the angry cloud of bees. That shotgun felt good and smooth in my hands, like something I wanted to lie down with. The one time my husband caught me standing at the window in assassin mode, he laughed and said I wouldn't know whether to fire it or play it. When the surgeon's incision healed, I took the black stitches out of my left foot myself. With the tweezers, I plucked and stacked the stitches on the kitchen table. Then I lit a matchstick. As the tiny bonfire burned, the thread twitched like furious legs. My husband entered the kitchen and stared at the twisting fire. What in blazes? Did you know a bee has five eyes, I asked. I'm surprised you do. Humans need more eyes, I said. He climbed into his beekeeper suit. Makes me sick to see you in that thing, I said. Enough about the bees already. You look like a sad astronaut, never going to get off Earth, I said. He moved to the back door, his fat suit legs swishing together like the sound of those bees on my hand that one time, tickling where I had expected stings. I jumped to my feet and started dancing, my arms raised over my head, clap, clap, and my butt shaking. My husband turned around in the doorway. I shimmied and twirled and waggled, searching beyond the black net of his mask, watching for any sign that he understood. Thank you. 
Thank you so much, Ethel. That was a hugely evocative and sensuous reading. Um, was it a challenge to find the, the voice of that particular story, or how did you go about doing it? What was different about that story than perhaps the majority of my others is that I actually came to the main character second. Um, I came to the wife second. Um, the first spark, if you like, for the story came when I visited with the family and, and the father in the family was indeed a beekeeper. It was my first time to meet a beekeeper. I was fascinated by the whole process. And at one point during our conversation, um, which I outright stole from him, he said, you know, it allowed me to connect with my 15-year-old son. It's the first time in many years we have something we could share together. And he said that exactly, it's great now that I have something I can share again with my son. And so that was sort of the start, but every time I tried to draft something around that, it just wasn't working. Um, and it was probably about a year later that I had a moment where I had an opportunity, to my horror, to use a BB gun. And I thought I was going to have the response of, oh, God, no, guns, pacifist, absolutely not. And to my shock and surprise, after about half an hour of the gun in my hands, I was quite <laughs> happily <laughs> shooting away. And, and that stuck with me. And that brought me to this character. And why would a character have this surprising response to a gun in her hands? You know, what, what made her? And, and so once I accessed her, and somehow it connected back to the beekeeper, mm. and that's... Thank you. And a lot of your work is concerned with the body, yeah. the kind of brokenness and fragmentation and um, paradoxical wholeness. Where does your interest in that come from? Um, that idea of incompleteness, it, it really fascinates me. Um, and I think it's how so often we appear to be intact and we appear to be complete. Um, and we're often not. And so it's that I, I find most of my characters are always yearning. There's that sense of absence, the invisible absence. Mm. Um, and I was just really taken with this character who feels invisible and mm. who's yearning to be noticed and in particular to be noticed by her husband. Mm. On the theme of, kind of the wholeness and fragmentation, I just wanted to read a William Carlos Williams quote about the short story, which really re reminded me of your work. Um, William Carlos Williams said, the short story acts like a flare of a match struck in the dark. It is the only real form for describing the briefness, the brokenness, and the simultaneous wholeness of people's lives. And it just made me think of that. And the uh, phrase that leapt out of, of that reading was good for the whole as well. Right. And, it, and I mean, the whole theme of the bee and the beehive, it's all about how does a part fit into the whole. That's so true. Um, yeah. do you, I mean, how do you go about creating kind of that sense of wholeness within such a, sh a, sh a short space, as it were. And that's the challenge. You know, this morning in workshop we talked about, you know, in a story so brief, um, you know, there is sort of almost the invitation or the, the yearning on, on behalf of the reader to want to open it up and know more. And, and so how do you know when something can be contained inside something that's, that's quite tiny? Um, and most of my stories that end up being that brief, and yet I hope and believe are still whole and complete, it comes from a lot of chiseling away of like much longer first drafts. Mm. Um, and so I think it's that idea of, of you go from a place of wholeness, if you like, like the blank page is kind of like the block. I always, I always use the sculpting metaphor. It's that idea of chiseling. And I personally just love challenging myself, you know, how efficient can I be? How skillful can I be? I, I talked earlier this morning about you know, getting in and out as fast as I can while doing the job well. I liked a lot of what Ethel was saying about finding her character voices, but one of the things I think that I quite liked was um, when Adam Merrick said he chooses a theme tune or a playlist for 
his characters and it's something I've never really thought of doing because I you just want to get you kind of get in there and you think you know your characters well enough but that I think that's quite a good idea and I might take that away oh yeah yeah it was just very interesting so we're talking about voice and somebody asked a question about being British and writing American voice but my first novel used very American voices and had to connect to like an African-American and I just love that sort of connection to voice so it was interesting to hear what they said about developing voice talking as if you're that character and how you can use that in a third person and first person so it resonated really interesting I'm definitely going to use their advice about reading my short stories aloud I just never want to hear my own voice <laughs> reading my own short stories but I will probably try that um, yeah I'm a big fan of John McGregor so I've this is the third event I've been to today and um, this is the one that I've been looking forward to the most I think yeah, I haven't seen John McGregory before and I've liked his story, so I'm looking forward to that particularly, yeah. You know, although his novels are amazing, I do think that John McGregor is particularly adept at the short story. This is a story I wrote for um, Sarah Hall and Pete Hobbs at Faber. I'm putting together an anthology of short stories called Sex and Death in two volumes. And they said, do you want to write in the sex volume or in the death volume? And I said, well... You know, most stories have got both, and the kind of the one is always implicit in the other. And they said, "We think you're doing it wrong." Um, <laughs> but then I decided to write a story about sex, and that's what I'm going to read now. And it's called. Um, I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's too long. I'm going to read about the first third of it. Um, it's called "Where Hast Thou Been Since I Saw Thee." When I first met God, I was desperate and lost, and my balls were leaping about within me from the lack of use. I was 22 years old and I'd never been laid. For a time I was stoical about the situation, but that time had passed. I'd taken to scanning the faces in whatever room or street I was passing through, as though looking for someone I'd lost, when in truth there was no one to lose. And in this way I'd come to see how many people were odd-looking or sad or turned in upon in their own special way. My face was looking much the same and I tried to hide it, but the hiding only made it worse. The state of most people, it was a wonder anyone ever got laid. I was 22 years old and I felt the time was passing. University had finished and I was stuck for ideas. It was the summertime. There was a party and I went because the others were going. Tony the Dutch and Jimmy James and X, the X-Man, they said they knew people there. Tony was from the Netherlands so we called him Tony the Dutch. The X-Man's name was something Greek that no one could pronounce. We were living in Leeds, and the party was in Hebden Bridge, so we took the train, a slammed door job shunting past the back streets and burning wastelands towards the narrows of the Calder Valley. There was a watery light washing over the hills, and the air was charged. Jimmy James was already on his second can. Tony the Dutch was quiet, and he kept rubbing his hands like he had a plan that would soon come together. X-Man was rolling a joint on a newspaper spread across his lap. He was saying a lot of words, but it was a job to know what all of them were. The train crossed a canal, and in the middle of the canal was a boat so slow it could have been there since the day before. The man at the tiller was watching the train with a patient kindness, as though his whole life he'd known our paths would cross at this point, and he would glance up and see the four of us with our faces turned to the glass. We went into a tunnel, and there was darkness, and we came out into the light. At the party, the kitchen was full, so we kept moving through to the backyard. We couldn't see anyone we knew, so we just stood around for a while. There was corduroy, and there were conversations about Derrida and Brazilian dams. It was an academic crowd. There was music from the kitchen, and when Nick Drake was finished, someone put on Astral Weeks. Whose party is this anyway? X-Man wanted to know. Tony nodded through the doorway towards a woman with black hair and thick makeup. 
She was holding a long cigarette beside her cheek and tilting her head back to laugh. He said her name was Sophia and she was teaching silent cinema at Leeds Met. A smile crept over his face and he wiped it away with his hand. X choked on a laugh and the smoke streamed out of his nose. Jim opened the fourth of his cans and fell back into a white plastic chair. He was on a teacher training course and the workload always had him wiped out. I went inside for a drink of my own. As I walked through the kitchen, I heard the German expressionist say softly to someone that his name was Tony and he was the next. I took a beer through to the back room where there was food laid out on a table and different music and still nobody there I knew. I edged through the crowd and by the time I reached the buffet I could tell this was another night I wouldn't get laid. I had an instinct for it. There was a pattern I couldn't get past. I saw a large bearded man at the savouries and before he'd even turned towards me I knew this was God himself. For a moment I was afraid to look upon his face. I'd known him by reputation long before we met and what I'd heard hadn't led me to expect that we'd be friends. Full of himself was the impression I'd formed. The kind of northern chancer who turns up at parties empty-handed and is drinking the best wine by the end of the night. His real name was Godfrey but he never answered to that. A big lad with a beard he'd grown to go with the name and talk that he could handle himself in a fight. No one I knew was likely to handle themselves in a fight. Those weren't the circles we moved in. We framed this as a question of non-violence and gender identity, but in truth we were sheltered and overfed. We stayed out of the town centres in the evenings and we kept our eyes lowered in the poorer neighbourhoods where we lived. God didn't sound as though he kept his eyes down for anyone. He sounded loud and tending obnoxious from the stories I'd heard. He turned to face me. His mouth was full and when he spoke he spat pastry flakes. I tried not to flinch. Hey up, he said. You tried these vegan sausage rolls that's a ruddy die for. Later, there was Jemby drumming, and God said there were better places we could be. Tommy the Dutch had disappeared, and Jim looked as though he'd be asleep all night, so there was only X-Man and me left to follow God down the road. We didn't ask where we were going. As we left, there was a girl with red hair who looked like she thought we knew each other, but I hadn't seen her before, so I nodded and followed the others. The streetlights were just coming on. There were seats on the train, but I couldn't sit down. The quick walk through the cooling air had sharpened me up, and there was a restlessness clicking through me. I asked X, did we know the girl with the red hair? And he said he didn't think so. I wondered, should I have stayed behind to talk? With no idea what I would have said or if I would have been wasting my time. I watched through the window, the lights of Hebden Bridge slip away around the corner, and I didn't know how I was ever going to get laid. The ache of it was all over me. God took us off the train at Bradford and led us through the littered streets. He had a light-footed swagger that didn't fit with his size. The swagger was from Manchester, though he'd done his growing up in towns further north with far less spring in their stride. We ducked around some bins and down an alley, and he knocked on a red steel door. When it opened, there were handshakes and God introduced us, and we followed him down some stone cellar stairs. There was a wet heat coming up to meet us, and a noise that was mostly bass. We asked him what this place was, and when he said it was the Mormon Social Club, it took a moment to realise he was kidding us on. That was the summer I worked at a bread factory on the edge of town. A week of night shifts and a week of days, and the havoc this played with my sleep only added to the trembling state of confusion I was in. The work was lifting tins and wheeling trays and sorting the subs from the batches as they hurtled down the line. It was heavy work and hot. The line moved fast and there was a terror of falling behind, the bread backing up and tumbling to the floor while the mocking shouts rang high. I thought the, I thought the hours of work would make me stronger, but they only made me tired. 
I lost weight. I thought I'd spend my break times catching up on study, but the canteen was no place to be seen with a book and have to answer questions about why you were there at all. Most nights when I worked there, I spent the whole time thinking about sex, and I made the mistake of once mentioning this to God. That'll be the yeast, he said, as we stood by the punch bowl at a Green Party fundraiser near Roundhay Park. Whole place reeking of it, our kid. All that rising action, stuff of life. The party was quieter than we'd hoped for, and this wasn't a conversation I wanted overheard. God had a voice that could project. It was an older crowd on the whole, and the women had a strong commitment to knitwear. In the back room, in the back room there were bald men with homemade guitars singing paragraphs of Foucault to a 12-bar blues. It wasn't clear if this was a performance or a study group, but we didn't stop to ask. We finished the punch and were halfway down the road before Tony thought to ask where we were going. God said there was a party in Headingley and we had time so we might as well walk. The evening was long and the shadows were longer and we had all the time in the world. There was some confusion about the route and at one point we had to cross a dual carriageway and cut through some woods. In the woodland there were some boys standing around a fire and two girls sitting on a mattress and nobody spoke as we made our way past. In a park James fell down a grass bank and it took a few minutes to get him back on his feet. <laughs> this was how that summer went walking around looking for the next party or gig, jumping on buses and trains, chasing rumours of lock-ins and open mic nights and benefit gigs, and always this long veiled light of the sun going up or coming down. We never made arrangements but God always showed up. It was a long time before I even knew where he lived, but I'd started to think of him as a friend. I didn't know if he considered me the same. We came into the leafy streets of Headingley and God put his arm around me and said, maybe this would be the night I found my way to the bread oven door. I must have looked puzzled for a moment too long. <laughs> Bush, our kid, I'm talking about Bush. Boggy holler. I nodded, but he carried on. Olive grove, mangrove, peaches and cream. I told him I'd got it, but he still carried on. <laughs> Rose garden, lady garden, garden of tears. X-Man said something in Greek that translated a secret harbour. <laughs> Tony the Dutch explained that they were referring colloquially to the female genitalia. I told them all I had got it. And God said getting it was exactly my problem. And as we came to the house where the party was, he started singing Like a Virgin to the tune of Ilkley Bartat. And he was still singing as we walked through the door. God always liked to make an entrance. It wasn't that I didn't know how to talk to girls, but there were some things I couldn't say. Some of my best friends were girls and we talked a lot. I never knew how to get to where the talking would stop, if there were cues I was missing or questions I was failing to ask. At heart, I assumed that no one would want me, so there seemed little point taking the chance. The beds I slept in were all too big, and I was kept awake often thinking of these things. The summer came to an end, and the autumn was heavy and wet. I didn't get the funding for my PhD, and sometimes after work I went for drinks on campus with a girl who had. She'd been on my master's course and was writing a thesis on hypertext. These were the early days of the internet and I wasn't always sure what she was talking about. Her name was Isabel and she had eyes that were hard to avoid. She had a way of holding your gaze. She'd ask what I was reading and my answers made her sad. When she put her hand under her chin and sighed, something span around inside me. One night we went to a benefit gig together. It was for an Israeli-Palestinian group called Soldiers for Peace. And before the music started, there were people talking on the stage. There were maps of many colours. There was talk of checkpoints and demolitions and international law. This was in the Wesleyan Chapel in Shipley. Tony knew someone in one of the bands and he was over near the stage with God and Jimmy James 
One of the speakers was a woman who'd served in the Israeli army and she challenged the audience directly while Isabel took notes on her use of rhetorical device. It's nice that you came tonight, the woman said. It's nice you're concerned about the situation and you care about us. Very nice. So what are you doing to change things? How are you challenging our governments? What good is your concern to us? She looked angry and I noticed that her eyebrows were dark and incredible and how attractive her scorn was. And I knew that if I didn't get laid soon, my political consciousness would be lost in a haze of objectification. <laughs> the first band started sound checking. And when Isabel touched my arm to ask what I wanted from the bar, it was the first time a woman had touched me for weeks. I kept my arm still so the sensation would take longer to fade. I saw God talking to the soldiers for peace, and he kept folding their leaflets into his hands. The band were terrible. When we headed to leave, I asked Isabel if she wanted to join us, but she had somewhere to be, and for the rest of the evening I felt raw with shame for having asked her at all. There was a gallery opening in Saltaire, and a warehouse party in Manningham, and by the end of the night, we were getting henna tattoos on our hands to raise money for the Zapatistas. <laughs> the logic of these things wasn't always easy to follow. <coughs> At some point in the evening, God told me he was adopted, and I couldn't work out how the conversation had begun. He'd been fostered for years and then adopted as a teenager, and he never knew where he was from. He told me this like it was something he'd read in a book. We both kept our hands very still. I wondered how long the henna would take to wash off. He'd never known who his real parents were, but Mike and Kath were so good to him that he waited until they died before trying to find out. Mike and Kath being his adoptive parents. After they'd both died, he went down to the archives and looked for his birth certificate. He made it sound easy. It wasn't clear how long ago he was talking. The tattoos were done by then and we stood up, but the woman told us not to leave until they dried. Wave your hands around a bit, she told us. When I found it, there were no father listed, God said. This stuff just rolled out of him sometimes. We both stood there with our hands in the air. My mother's name was Ruth Shilansky, he said. He looked at me like I should know what he meant, but it took me a moment to cop on. So, you're God's Jewish, I asked. He shrugged. Who knew? <laughs> Thank you. Well, as always, McGregor was terrible. <laughs> no, I can't speak about this. McGregor's a friend of mine, so anything I say is going to be like uh, inauthentic. How about you, Kevin Barry? Yeah, he's no friend of mine, so I thought he was wonderful. I could say he was wonderful. No, I thought it was great. And it's great to see so many bodies for short stories when they could be doing any amount of other things in London tonight, but they're here for short stories, so it's great. Is it Ben Oakley? Well, I'm a bit biased because I'm a very close friend of Ben Oakley. So, Me too. Um, yes, we're both very close friends of Ben Oakley. Well, we know he's an established writer. He's written quite a lot of books. and um... Well, he's famous for the Famished Road um, trilogy, um, winning the Booker Prize. He's um, got fans all around the world. I wanted to see him today, probably have a selfie. He's on the Kane Prize yes. committee. He's an all-round uh, literary guy. As a budding author myself, I'd like to know, you know, the challenges he faced, you know, when he first started, what he must have felt, you know, at some point, maybe he must have felt like giving up, you know, and um, I just need some encouragement and empowerment, you know, from his own um, experiences as an author. I've always felt that there ought to be a school for reading, a, a, almost like a degree for reading. Mm -hmm. um, because I, 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 I've taken many courses, I've talked with people about books, and I am quite shocked at the way in which we read. Even the most intelligent amongst us read very lightly, very casually. We don't read deeply enough. We don't dive into the text. 
Um, and I think for me, the result of that is I've changed the nature of the way I read mm. over the last 10 years. I used to read very fast. Now I read much, much more slowly because I really want to hear the secret music of, of the text I'm reading. If it's, a well, if it's a genuinely well-written piece of work, it's really much more than the words on the page. It's also what's behind it. It's what's not said. It's also the way in which it is structured on the page. There are many, many, many profound considerations. And I think the art of reading, I think we're still very young in the art of reading. I think we take it too much for granted. Mm. I'm interested that you say you you read differently now to how you read 10 years ago. 20 years ago. 20 years ago. Um, so, So you used to read very fast. I prided myself on my fast reading. Yeah. And what, what do you think drove you to read so quickly? Just wanted to get to the end, find out what happens? Um, I, think it's, um, I think it's just a desire to devour a text. Mm. You, hunger. You, hunger. You, just, you just want to read, you know, read it fast yeah. and read something else. Yeah. Get on to the next um, book. Get on to the next book. Yeah. Um, and I think, um, I think there, is something, there is something exhilarating about reading fast. Mm. There really is. There's a, a kind of a mental buzz that you get from reading a book at tremendous speed. Mm-hmm. But it just means that half the time you're missing, you're missing 80% of the art that's involved. Mm. Mm-hmm. If you read a great novel fast, you may as well not read it at all because you'd have missed everything. That's quite interesting, actually. Yeah, really. Um, I, um, I mentioned to you earlier on I have toddlers, twins, who are two. And so I've barely read anything in two years because there's just... I read about a page a day and fall asleep in, you know, at 7 o'clock in the evening. Um, and I started reading Fam- The Famished Road when I knew that I'd be meeting you. And you read at a great speed. Well, I couldn't. It's, it's impossible to read quickly. Um, or at least it's impossible to read quickly um, and pick up the full effect of it. And I, and I realised I had to almost relearn to read, to read it properly, and actually read each sentence at a time and really absorb what was happening. Well, that's because you're a generous reader. Oh. Um, I have there are many other readers who didn't make that effort at all, oh, okay. um, and I think I think books I think books yield the efforts we give them. If it's a really bad book and you give it great effort, um, I think it becomes apparent pretty soon that you're giving way too much effort to this thing. You just get bored or you get annoyed. Mm. Um, but um, and I don't think it's got to do with how difficult the writing is or how simple it appears to be, because mm. something can be written. Um, apparently simply and yet be tremendously profound. Um, I'll give you a, a minor example of this. It's a great example, actually. The Little Prince, a mm. book by Exupery, written for children. If you read that book fast, you'll miss uh, levels of racism that it refers to. You'll miss all kinds of little quiet things that are tucked away there. But when you read it very slowly, this text suddenly magnifies. Mm-hmm. Um, and every other sentence is just capable of um, extraordinary quiet illumination. It's the 21st of June, 2015, and it's the longest day. And today, here at the London Short Story Festival, we have fairy tales and the short story. Yeah, we had to, to talk about fairy tales. Um, I think I particularly wanted to hear Marina Warner talk about fairy tales because she's obviously a specialist on, on this topic. Well, fairy tales have risen in status over the last 40 years, quite considerably. I'd say that they grew up in 1979 when The Bloody Chamber by Angela Carter was published, a significant date in their current character. But what is a fairy tale? First of all, a fairy tale is distinct from fairy tale, the genre. I'll explain. A fairy tale is a single short story with supernatural elements and some historical relationship to anonymous folklore, Bluebeard or Red Riding Hood. The magical elements need not be fairies as such 
or imps or spirits, but simply a climate of unpredictable enchantment. The bloody key in Bluebeard, the seductive talking wolf, and in some versions of that story, the resurrection of Granny and the little girl from the belly of the wolf. But fairy tale is a language of the imagination. And this is the area that's truly flourishing in contemporary culture, taking its cue from potent literary forerunners. Shakespeare, for example, The Tempest is not a fairy tale, but it has fairy tale affinities. So does Midsummer Night's Dream, it has fairies in it, it's not a fairy tale. The Romantics, Keats and Coleridge, and closer to our time, E.T.A. Hoffman, Kafka, Karen Blixen, Borges. When Angela Carter defined the tale as opposed to the short story, she wrote, the tale does not log everyday experience as the short story does. It interprets everyday experience through a system of imagery derived from subterranean areas behind everyday experience. The differences between the tale and the fairy tale principally turn on a difference of language. Fairy tale's system of imagery, the word she uses for tale, the phrase she uses for tale, is rich and complex, but it's still particular to fairy tale. It brings an assumption also that the ending will bring hope. And I can't give you the whole language of fairy tale in the time, but we can talk about that if you want. As a language of the imagination, fairy tales held in common. It's close to myth in this sense, but it's different from myth because the characters in fairy tale are not divine or omnipotent, and the magic isn't connected to religious, a religious vision of any kind. The enchanted beings of this modern fairy tale are not fairy godmothers with powers of transformation, but nameless, ominous, but nameless and ominous, like the unspecified, unidentified agency that changes the office clerk, Gregor Samsa, into a giant beetle, one of the great fairy tale pieces of literature of modernity. The eeriness of fairy tale is grounded in the here and now. And this is why the word uncanny, unhomely, as discussed by Freud, has become such a key concept in thinking about the term. Alan Garner's haunted landscape, Alderley Edge, shivers with currents of presences from the past. Fairy tale assumes that all matter, <coughs> rocks, trees, metals, are saturated with memory and consciousness, and if properly attended to, can communicate. Garner's is a form of enchanted fairy tale literature rooted in the in English fairy, in Midsummer Night's Dream, and the Fairy Queen. But it's not a fairy, none of his books are fairy tales. As a language, fairy tale allows writers to play with readers' expectations and spring surprises against the grain of the usual plot or character. And you see this in sort of revisionings, current revisionings, like Helen Oyeyemi's work. This goes far beyond postmodern game playing or clever intertextuality. It places the contemporary uses of fairy tale in the lineage of the classics, where stories could belong to all of us and can be twisted and turned into a tragedy or a comedy, a satire or an elegy. Shelley wrote a vast political dream poem called Queen Mab after the fairy's midwife as evoked in Romeo and Juliet. Fairy tale's familiarity to us, the readers, gives it a certain finality. And that's close to an oracle. We kind of know what's going to happen. And that works, sorry, it works like an oracle. And it's a deep irony that the characters don't. 
So they don't know what's happening, but we do. And that gives it a kind of oracular, prophetic um, uh, energy. And if it works out according to expectations as set up in previous versions, then satisfaction ensues. It's a kind of happy ending. But if not, and many contemporary workers with fairy tale change the endings, or change the direction, or change the characters, then into something more ambiguous, then we are still given the pleasure of the relationship to the past the, in the change, in the transformation. It, there's a fulfillment of pleasure all the same. Now you could draw a Venn diagram with fairy tale as one large circle intersecting with an even larger circle called fantasy, intersecting with several others so that they share areas together, gothic, horror, science fiction, magical realism, and now, strongly, the writing of place. There's a lot of haunted writing of place as fairy tale elements. Some books and stories for young children would be there too, but the trend has been strongly for fairy tale material to migrate into writing for older readers. Because today, the form reverberates with world tensions, with family strife, sexual exploitation, injustice and cruelty, as related in fairy tale material match what is happening all too well. And, ha and it also has developed in symbiosis with certain vigorous lines of criticism. So the currents of concern flowing from these conditions in the world have developed ways of reading and understanding. Feminism has been crucial in establishing the language of fairy tale for many audiences. And you can see this in varying ways in Je Jeanette Winterson's writing, in Antonia Byatt's writing, in Ali Smith's writing. Also films made by women, like Jane Campion's The Piano, or Julia Lee's The Sleeping Beauty, sorry, Julia Lee's Sleeping Beauty, return to the tropes of fairy tale and probe and test them. And in films produced by women, even for the blockbuster market, such as Maleficent by Angelina Jolie, the women are tackling the stereotypes and struggling to shape them into new shapes, to shake them into new shapes. Post-colonial awareness and world conflicts and global circulation of ideas have also transvalued the any material coming from popular anonymous oral sources, touching on fairy tale frequently. For example, in the shortlist of the Man Booker International Prize, Mia Kouta from Mozambique, Marise Condé from Guadeloupe, and Alain Mabancou from the Republic of Congo all draw vigorously on their country's stories, beliefs, proverbs, superstitions very, very richly. And one further point to conclude. In current fiction, the voice of the writer often sounds from the page as a speaking narrator. This is rather different from the style of Jane Austen or Proust. And I think it's an effect of the new media that literature is returning to evoking the living voice. But one of its consequences has been a revival of the idea of literature as storytelling, of one person saying to another, Listen, I'm going to tell you a story to make you feel a little better. And that's from The Golden Ass, a very, very early fairy tale. Antonio Byatt quotes Terry Pratchett saying, Stories can exist independently of their players. If you know that, the knowledge is power. Story, this is Pratchett still. Stories, great flapping ribbons of shaped space-time, have been blowing and uncoiling around the universe since the beginning of time and their very existence overlays a faint but insistent pattern on the chaos that is history." Close quotes. When you speak a language, you obey the rules at first. When you're learning French, you 
speak it's as according to the rules. But if you're a writer writing in French, you take liberties with it, you play with it. So though stories do shape us, as Pratchett says, we can play with them. That is the task the visionary writer Ursula Le Guin called for last year when she said, any human power can be resisted and changed by human beings. Resistance and change often begin in art, very often in our art, the art of words. What a fantastic panel. I thought they all spoke with such intelligence. They were hugely inspiring. Key takeaway, using the skin of a fairy tale to create your own story, using that structure to push against and put across what you want to say. I grew up around fairy tales. I'm German, so all of my cultural references are German fairy tales in their original horrifying moralistic state. So I didn't actually have the filtered... English versions of any of them so I have a slightly different idea about fairy tales and it was really nice to see that and I thought that I think the most interesting thing for me was that thing that reconfirmed what, what happened in my childhood which was that it gives you recognition without terror so it's this idea of teaching people what might happen without putting them in that immediate danger. I'm Sue Lawther I'm the director of Spread the Word and I'm here with Paul McVeigh who's our festival director. So, Paul, we've got to the end of the festival. What have been your highlights? It's been amazing, hasn't it? Oh, it's been fantastic. Well, my highlights are just coincidentally the two things that I chaired, uh, which was um, uh, last night we had an amazing event called Modern Voices with John McGregor, who's just one of the best writers writing in the UK at the minute, uh, Laura Vandenberg, who's called the, you know, the, the best young writer in America, and, uh, and with May Lantan, an exciting new voice, who you know um, Raymond Carver's uh, editor absolutely love so I mean that was a really amazing event the quality of the writing and the, the variety was, was pretty spectacular and then today with the Sunday Times Award celebration we had Kevin Barry over from Ireland like one of the you know he's just incredible I mean the, the, it was an electric kind of performance as well he gives he's probably the best reader um, of, of, of his work or of, of any writer that I know that reads the work and then Toby Litt and, uh, and, and Tamina Anaman just to give um, a lot of variety as well in there but also uh, shortlisted uh, authors um, of top quality and so yeah pretty pretty brilliant for me. A standout quote for me which was one of the sessions the other day was uh, one of the writers said that a short story is like having the sky reflected in a puddle and they were talking about the the breadth of a short story and the big themes that you can capture and tackle in a short story, but you do it in this wonderful uh, sort of distilled form. Uh, and I thought that I just I just loved that. I thought that was uh, fantastic. What stood out for me was the audience, um, the audiences of, of, of over the, over the entire festival. I mean, you know, we they they've been really engaged. I've asked really intelligent questions of the authors. I mean, a lot of the audience uh, are writers themselves, so they're really they love the form, and you know, and they came out to support it in um, in, in huge numbers. Um, and the festival was on in the second year, and I mean, really, I mean, today, I you know, the, the events are practically sold out, and uh, and they're packed, and people asking really intelligent questions of the authors and and stimulating a hugely important debate about short stories and their power and its craft and its potential and and so for that though that's the thing that's really stood out to me like what what an intelligent and, and dedicated audience and, and and what a pleasure it's been to spend time with them do you know we had we had uh, two writers who came all the way from melbourne for this festival they saw it online last year 
and uh, realised they'd missed it. Mm. And so this year planned their trip around this festival, which I just thought was so wonderful, so impressive. Well, it's an international festival where it's becoming, and, and, and I mean, in a very short space of time. I mean, this year we've had a rider from India, two riders from Canada, two from America, from South Africa as well, and then we've riders from you know, from Ireland, two from Italy. You know, I mean, that's pretty amazing, and um, and then a huge, hugely diverse uh, readership um, or riders rather, which is pretty amazing for a festival anyway. And but but it's particularly a festival this young, you know, to take those kind of risks and not just go for the obvious names and 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 you know, and have thirty percent and. Um, of the authors um, represented um, of a BAME background. So, I mean, that, that kind of stuff really matters, and I think people people see that, and it gives it an international flavour and a taste and a sound and a feel. And I think that we're getting the response by having people come from around the world to see it as well. A huge thanks to Paul because he's been extraordinary. He helped us set the festival up last year, and this year he's been a, a director for us, the second year running. Uh, he's been extraordinary, um, and we're eternally grateful to him for helping us make this festival the success it has been that was sue lawther talking to paul mcveigh if you like what you've heard from the london short story festival and want to hear more well you can by going to spreadtheword.org.uk or lssf.co.uk where we've released eight full sessions to download for free This podcast was made with the kind support of Arts Council England and Waterstones. Thanks to them and to you for listening. Goodbye.